You may be seated. I want to say thanks to Josh Drew. And again, if you have not had a chance to meet Josh and his family, skip Josh and just meet his family. Because <laughs> they're so great. I'm so grateful for them and for Colin, for Andrew, for Lauren, for being here today to lead us in worship. And I just also want to say that you may have always wondered, and the answer is yes. I do take it very personally that nobody but Tom sits right here. I get it. I have a lisp. There's some precipitation that occurs. You'll be fine. It's like a Gallagher concert. I'm trying to rein it back a little bit, but welcome to worship. As I like to say, there's nothing quite like a hailstorm at 7 a.m. to make people go, you know what? I think I'll watch on Facebook. But you're here. And so I'm delighted by that. I'm humbled by that. My name's Eric, and I also happen to like pickleball. So we got that going for me. Those of you who are here for the announcement, Mike sort of tried to shame like all of us. So welcome to Bethel. We want to continue to worship this morning, and so we're going to read our passage for this morning. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to put this on screen, not because we're trying to train you never to bring your own Bible, but just so that we're all kind of on the same page in the same translation. If you have a different text, a different version, that's fantastic. That's great. I encourage that. But I'm going to read through this, and then we'll try to... uh, Unpack it a bit, and we'll see if we can apply it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll go through the first 11 verses. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by, the same, by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is God's word. This is one of those issues in the church that is potentially contentious. It doesn't need to be. I want to say at the outset, we're not talking about things that should divide churches or make denominations. So if you've got a particularly sensitive spot about this issue of spiritual gifts, one side or the other, I'm going to invite you to relax your doctrinal defense gates. There are some things on which your doctrinal defense gates need to be welded shut. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Jesus being both God and man, the doctrine that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, those things you do not budge. On the issue of tongues and spiritual gifts, we can be a little bit more flexible. We're not dealing with bedrock, dogma, foundational salvation issues. So with all that said, I want to tell you a quick little story. I had the opportunity yesterday with my wife, Susan, to have lunch with a couple couples in this congregation. They shall remain nameless, but I absolutely loved it because I got to observe something that has been happening in their lives for decades. 
in both cases, this is so great, they've spent so much time together that they're actually starting to look like one another. And as I sit here and I'm looking out there, I'm like, yep, 30 years. Yep, 40 years. Yep, from birth. I get it. The more time you spend with somebody, the more you actually begin to look like them, think like them, feel like them, and speak like them. It's so cute to watch them complete each other's sentences and to have the same thoughts, feelings, and perspectives. It's God's plan. It's how it's supposed to go. We say this all the time down here. We become like what we behold. Careful, little eyes, what you see. God is fully aware of that. It has been his intention to fill the earth with his presence and his purpose. And that involves us. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I want to read it again. This is from the book of Genesis in the creation narrative of chapter one. God discussing how and why he created humankind. Just a few quick verses here. Chapter one of Genesis, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us, that's the, the throne room of heaven, the, the triune Godhead, certainly, but more than that, it's all of the, the majesty, the marvel, the mystery of the presence of God in his throne room. Let us make humanity in our image, after our likeness. Now, that's amazing. Angels aren't given that distinction. Animals are not given that distinction. Plant life is not given that distinction. It is humanity. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. How's that working for you? You had a whole lot of just dominion over the fish lately? Not so much. So something has broken. Something has fallen. Something has become marred. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, that's beautiful Hebrew parallelism. Moses really wants us to understand the, the, the force of what God has done with intentionality. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them, both of which are created fully in his image. Verse 28, and God blessed them. That's the gospel. Can I just go ahead and spoil the surprise? There's the gospel. They're in a holy, sinless, perfect environment, and yet God infuses them with even more joy. They've earned nothing. He just blesses them because that's what he's like. That's who he is. That's what he does. Now, that simple little phrase ought to cause us to think increasingly rightly, to feel increasingly deeply about this God. And the more we spend time with him, the more we think on him, the more we seem to reflect and radiate and resemble him. And God blessed them. No other deity operates in that fashion. Just out of the blue for no particular reason other than what he's like, he blesses them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. I am blessing you and I'm also giving you the blessing of being fruitful and productive and to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Do you see that that is the blessing? Participate, participation in his purpose. That is the blessing to actively, intentionally, and volitionally be about what his purpose is. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, maybe one day, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God says, I'm going to go viral. 
I'm going to decentralize my ethic. I want you to be the ones who go out and about converting this whole created material, physical world to be a dwelling for God and man. Go get them. Doesn't last very long. They grasp for more. Until thousands of years later, we have King David, the one who was supposed to represent and resemble the righteousness of God's realm. He writes in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. David says, there is sin. It's corrupting, it's corroding, it is marring. However, God, you are still getting it done. What would it look like if the people that God had created to be his presence and his purpose in the world actually were? It would be glorious. It would be awesome. It would be orderly. But that doesn't always happen. It certainly doesn't happen consistently. That's because sin is a really big deal. It has wrecked much of the created order. However, as David understands and confesses, God will stop at nothing to provide a dwelling for God and us. And so our big idea for this morning comes right out of the text. It goes like this. The church is a redemptive recreation. Taking chaos and intentionally, lovingly, relationally making it new, making it cosmos, order. The church is intended to operate with order, not to be unpredictable or crazy. It's to represent that which was created, which shall ever be for all eternity, and that which is being remade in the presence and the tense of our people today. The church is God's plan for this age. It is God's plan for your life. So with all that, let's circle back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What was Paul saying to them there and then? There are some sticky texts in this paragraph, but they certainly understood what he was trying to convey there and then. Our job as expositors is to understand what does it mean to them there and then, what is a timeless truth taught for all people across all time in all spaces, and then how does it actually impact us here today? So with all that said, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning. I want to remind you, which you've already heard me say many, many times since we've started this series in 1 Corinthians, that the first six chapters are all rebukes, just cat of nine tails, whoops, cat of nine tails, whoops, as the apostle is just lambasting them for all of their gross, disgusting error and their need of some antibiotics, okay? There was some grossness happening in Corinth. But in chapter 7 through 16, we pivot. And we're talking about all these responses. They had written him a letter. He responded. They wrote him another letter and brought with it a report having, having all these questions and all these uncertainties. And so every new section, he will begin with now concerning, apparently addressing something that they had written, or at least it was carried by whoever brought the letter himself, probably Sosthenes. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Well, kind of, sort of, not really, not exactly. It's just now concerning the spiritual stuff, 
pneumaticon. And it's not spiritual gifts. That, the word's not there. The translators try to help us out, but they give us an interpretation that may go too far. It's just now concerning spiritual stuff, now concerning the spiritual things, which gives you a tip off. There is a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the spiritual in Corinth. Corinth is in Europe. Corinth is Western civilization. It's Greek. It's all about individualism. It's all about humanism. The Eastern churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and all of those, they were dealing with Eastern issues, mysticism and spiritism and all kinds of weird stuff. In Greece, they were elevating the human, the individual. But there were some that were trying to be very, very spiritual. Can that happen? In our century, even in East Texas, there are a lot of folks that claim to be very spiritual people. You ask them what that means, they have no idea. It's just they heard it on the TikToks. So what does it mean to actually be spiritual? And so Paul says, now, concerning the spiritual stuff, the spiritual things or the spiritual people, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed, which means, of course, they were uninformed. Or as my dad would say, I don't want you to be ignorant because they were ignorant, as was evidenced and demonstrated by how they were actually behaving. The church was out of order. That environment, that aesthetic, that ethic that was supposed to be a preview of the coming attraction, that is the kingdom of Christ, was operating in chaos, not in cosmos. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, but evidently you are uninformed. Allow me to inform you. I don't want you to be uninformed. Verse two, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. All that means is we know that before you became a believer, you used to, well, you used to worship idols, these little statues that represented false gods that are not gods. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have hands and feet, but they do not move. They do not grab. They have legs, but they cannot move. And in fact, Psalm 115 says, all who make those end up like them, dead. Now, we understand that that's, that's what you were doing there's a lot of different influences in Corinth. It was a port city, not just one port. Corinth had two ports, about 200,000 citizens, another 400,000 or so slaves. And they trucked in all this different culture into their context. And so there was all kinds of different false gods. And so Paul's already said in chapter eight and in chapter 10, hey, I get it, you're right, you're smart. Those aren't real gods, they're not real. But when you engaged in the practice of false god idolatry, you were invoking demons and they're very real and they're very serious and they're not to be trifled with. So when you try to perform the way you used to because you used to be a big fish in a small pond and now the pond is even smaller at First Corinth Church and you're trying to do the same kinds of stuff in the church, you're dragging in the doctrine of demons. It is way out of order just because you're trying to be spiritual, just because you're trying to assert yourself over somebody else. And it's this weird gray area of, oh, no, 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 you can't tell me if I'm spiritual or not. I know, I'm spiritual. I have the gift of such and thus. And so Paul says, no, this is a big deal. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However you were led, whichever ones you got to, whichever ones you followed, that was a part of who you are. You have died to that. Verse three, therefore, I want you to understand, no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. Is that the most well-duh, obvious statement in all of your Bible? You gotta remember the early heresies about Jesus in the church were not that he was not God. That wasn't their problem. That was in the Eastern settings. 
The problem that, that Western churches were facing is they denied that Jesus was human. Just couldn't be because material, fleshy, physical stuff was evil, they said. He can't be human. And so apparently as they were getting all lathered up, they would come in and they would start to ecstatically proclaim Jesus is accursed because if he was man. And Paul says, uh, hard no. That is not coming from the spirit of God. You've trucked in the doctrine of demons who obviously are going to oppose the truth of who Christ is. Don't let that stuff come in. That is not coming from the spirit. It might be from some spirits. Don't tangle with them. It is not coming from the spirit. Nobody ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, Obviously, an unbeliever, someone who is unredeemed, unregenerate, can mouth the words and make the audible sounds and say, Jesus is Lord. What Paul means here is his own confession of conversion in the book of Galatians, which he's referring to Peter's great confession. In Matthew 16, 16, Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds, you didn't figure that out on your own. That did not come to you from flesh and blood, but my father who is the spirit in heaven. In the same way, Paul in Galatians says, hey, this did not come to me by flesh and blood, but from our Father who is in heaven. The Spirit reveals this. And so what Paul is saying is, if you legeo, if you confess this truth sincerely and you believe this, this is a working, a movement, a proof of the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. No one just says that on their own. They don't just discover this and figure this out academically with reason. No, the Spirit has to do a thing so that they can confess the fact that Jesus is Lord. Incidentally, that's high treason because Corinth is a Roman colony in which there are statues everywhere that says Caesar is Lord. And Paul says, actually, no, he's not. He's a figurehead. He's a little piece on a chessboard. Jesus is the risen, death-proof king, and he is Lord, he is divine. Now, verse four, there are varieties of gifts, and now he does get into gifts, but the same spirit. And Paul's gonna do something absolutely amazing. He's gonna talk about these gifts, but he's gonna start off with Trinitarianism. He's gonna tell us about the different members of the Godhead Trinity. There is one God existing eternally in three persons, and there is one God. And so he's going to demonstrate how the church should operate in order by showcasing the unity of the Godhead with its diversity. Not uniformity, unity through diversity for the purpose of maturity. Keep that in mind. Unity in diversity for maturity. And he's going to demonstrate that by showing us the Trinity. Verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. One Holy Spirit. He's a person in the Godhead, which is diversity, but there is many gifts, one Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse six, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God. That's the Father who empowers them all in everyone. Now, he's about to list out nine different spiritual gifts. I should point out these are not exhaustive. This is not all that there are. You can find lists of spiritual gifts in other places. Uh, the rest of these chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, you'll see it in Romans 12, in Ephesians 4, and in 1 Peter 4, he walks through all of these things. These spiritual gifts are given to believers by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a Pauline pattern that you kind of have to be aware of what's going on. Way back in chapter 8, you've slept since then, 
we introduced the issue and the struggle of the people of Corinth in the church eating meat sacrificed to idols. And then Paul addresses it sort of vaguely, abstractly, and then he does a whole lot of stuff. And then finally, at the end of chapter 10, he goes ahead and settles the matter. Paul almost never says, okay, here's your problem. Here's what you do. First, he addresses their errant demeanor, their errant doctrine, their errant attitudes and actions to one another. That's what he does in chapters eight and nine. Finally, at the end of chapter 10, he settles the matter. He goes, okay, here's what you do. Don't eat it if it was this. Eat it if it was this. Stop asking questions. Get on with your lives. Eat it already. Shut up. It's another one of those instances. He opens the Pandora's box, you might say, here in chapter 12, and then he's gonna spend the rest of chapter 12 and 13 kind of expressing the issues that they were exploring, and then he'll finally tell them with specificity all of chapter 14, so here's what I want you to do about it. Don't worry, we're gonna cheat. We're gonna look ahead and see what he actually says in chapter 14, and then we'll get there and study chapter 14 here in a few weeks. So, we have to understand he's about to lay out some of these gifts, beginning in verse seven. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. I don't wanna go past that too quickly. Because what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, is utterly shocking, or at least it should be. The spiritual gift is not just some trick or tactic. It is a manifestation of the third member of the Godhead Trinity himself. Read it again, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit so you are indwelled by the Spirit, you are sealed by the Spirit, you are filled with the Spirit, but the gift he gives to each and every single believer. The New Testament knows no ungifted believer. The New Testament knows no unchurched believer. The New Testament knows no unbaptized believer. And each one of those believers is given a manifestation, a little chip off the old spirit block, you might say. Now, I'm gonna put this on screen just to make it easy. You can make this, you can see this later if you like or not. There are categories of these spiritual gifts. The way I sort of slice them and dice them, I think there are four categories of spiritual gifts. The categories of spiritual gifts are revelatory. They help us understand something about the truth of who God is, what God has done, whose we are. Those things are scripture. They help us to understand, interpret, and proclaim scripture. There are confirmatory gifts, Sometimes in the book of Acts, you read where the apostle Paul would do something to prove or to confirm the fact that he is actually an apostle with the authority to proclaim and inscripturate God's word. There are speaking gifts, just the proclamation, the declaration of the excellencies of God. And then there are service gifts. So four different kinds, revelatory, confirmatory, speaking, and service. And I want to reiterate, all of these are spirit assigned and spirit energized. So how many spiritual gifts are there actually? It's funny, you read books and their libraries been printed about how many spiritual gifts they are. Let me give you some examples. Warren Wearsby says there are 19. Charles Ryrie, the guy who I thought wrote the Bible for the first 18 years of my life. Charles Ryrie, he says there's 16, okay? John MacArthur, he says, nobody has any idea whatsoever. Thanks, John, super helpful. Peter Wagner says there are 30 plus, including the gift of martyrdom. Not a whole lot of folks are praying for that one, incidentally, right? Please, God, make the fire hot. Nobody's saying that. A guy named Robert Thomas says there are 18. So historically, there's a lot. Now, there's different approaches for what exactly are these spiritual gifts. 
And this is not a central, essential issue. So if this upsets or offends you, learn pickleball, okay? I don't want anybody to get upset about this. Two different approaches for what these spiritual gifts, how they sort of manifest and how they operate. The first view is probably what most of us are more familiar. It's called the supernatural view. Spiritual gifts are supernatural gifts given to the believer by the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation for the edification of the church and the fulfillment of the ministries of the church. It's a gift given to you to sort of supercharge who you are in Christ, what you're doing for his bride, for his body. That's one approach to supernatural spirit gifts. I like that. The second approach is what we call the supernatural natural view. Spiritual gifts are both natural talents that the Holy Spirit gives to all people at birth, created in his image. In his image, they were created male and female. He created them. And supernatural gifts that he gives at the time of salvation. When a person becomes a believer, God takes his or her natural talents and uses them as gifts for the edification of the church and the fulfillment of the ministries of the church. So which is it? I've seen both. I will tell you in my opinion, which is subject to error, it's more normative in our context, in our circumstance, in our setting, that the supernatural, natural view seems to be more normative than the other. But that in no way discounts the possibility of God giving a new believer a brand new gift. I just haven't experienced it or witnessed it as often in this time and place. But I certainly concede, no doubt about it, that the supernatural view may be more normative in other contexts, other countries perhaps, where there's fewer believers gathered, where there are less access to resources, or even severe persecution. It's vital to point out that, again, we are not talking about matters of salvation. I will just tell you in my experience, which is not inspired, not infallible, not inerrant. So we're not talking about major issues. In my experience, things that people are born into this world, skilled, passionate about, able, talented to do, in the church, God frequently fans those things from flickers into flames and they bless the church with them. I have very rarely encountered somebody from France that was overnight able to speak Vietnamese because they became a Christian. Has it happened? Possibly, perhaps, I don't know. More normatively, who you are created in God's image is fully redemptively recreated at conversion and like God had planned in Genesis 1, like what David proclaimed in Psalm 8, you are now spiritually manifesting the presence of God. If there was no sin who he created you to be, to do what you love, to do what you're talented, to do what your mind compels you to do. Mike Hall is a systems guy. His brain, his mind just works to add process to vision. That's a gift demonstrated in Romans chapter 12. That's just how Mike does. He sees a hill and he instantly begins putting things in place to make them occur. Me, I like putting Oh, and nachos, that's it, and nachos. I think that might, I came out of the womb like, where's the nachos? And then I just never stopped. There's hopefully more to it than that. Whatever it is. Now, can God also amplify and give a brand new spiritual gift that nobody was expecting? Yes, he absolutely can. That's part of his being sovereign. In our culture and context and circumstance, I don't think that's as normative. And so what happens is when people try to 
assert themselves as having some things that are not normative over others and claim to be varsity. And if you're not doing what they're doing, then you're junior varsity, you're less than, they have superiority over you and the church is out of order and people suffer, Christ is not worshiped and the whole thing is very bad. It's a big deal. But let's not make it the biggest deal. So again, we had these different gifts. Verse eight, for to one is given through the spirit and you're gonna see the spirit listed six times in these next few verses, because Paul really wants you to understand this is all from the Spirit. The Spirit's doing this. This is the Spirit thinning the veil between heaven and here and doing so through us. Verse eight, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Nobody knows for sure what that exactly means. Some of these gifts here in 1 Corinthians 12 are not listed anyplace else, which has led some people to say, okay, well, the spirit of wisdom, they just needed that in Corinth because they were all dumb. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I think as Paul is just dictating this letter, these are the things that are coming to mind. Is there a massive difference between here in verse eight, the spirit of, uh, the utterance of wisdom and to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit? Maybe, I don't know, probably not. My sense is that the knowledge is the ability to understand revealed scripture, spirit-fed, spirit-led truths as, is, as are illumined by scripture. The utterance of wisdom has more specifically in mind, I take it, the application of that illumined and revealed truth from God's word. What do we do with this in the here and now? There are some that are really great and gifted at expositing, exegeting, pulling out the truths of God's word. And there are others that are saying, hey, this is why this matters for our family, for our congregation, for our community. Those are revelatory. And they're also connected to speaking kinds of gifts. Verse nine to another, faith. So apparently there is an energizing of the Spirit, that there are people who just trust God despite all the evidence to the contrary. Maybe in, in, in a situation of, of a capital campaign or of, of a national catastrophe, these people are just ener energized, and despite all evidence and all surroundings, they just trust God, and, and they're not worried. They know how this is going to end. These people somehow have Monday's paper on a Friday. They just, they just they trust God. They know how this is gonna go. I don't see that one as frequently. I would love to have that. I will tell you candidly and confessionally, I struggle there. Verse nine, again, to another faith by the same spirit, to another the gift of healing by one spirit. I think certainly in that context, there were miraculous healings that were happening. I also think this could be supernatural natural. Someone who is just gifted at diagnosing and prognosing, someone who is just compassionate, who uses their experience, their equipping, their energy to bless someone physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, spiritually. What's the difference? I don't know. But those gifts were in play then. I think in a sense, they certainly are here as well. Are they to be normative? In one sense, Healing gifts were almost always, not always, but almost, almost, almost always confirmatory to demonstrate the veracity and the authority of a prophet or an apostle. And here's what we know. Not everybody has the gift of healing because if you do, you're doing a terrible job because everybody ever except for Elijah and Enoch have died. Like if you've got the gift of healing and you're just lazy, shame on your person. No, you, you can drive by lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of cemeteries. 
So, so it can't just be to keep the human population doubling and tripling on an annual basis. That would not be good. So we think that the gift of healing is probably not for normative activity, but for confirmation of a prophet or an apostle's ministry. Verse 10, to another, the working of miracles, simply the performances of power. Again, these tend to be confirmatory. It's not that you just produce a fruitcake out of thin air. That'd be dope. That's not what he's talking about here. These are, again, to confirm the authority of the apostle. To another, prophecy. That one has tripped people up. What does it mean, prophecy? Two different categories of prophecy. It can mean foretelling, that is predicting the future, by this time tomorrow, the Super Bowl will have been played. You heard it here first, Lord willing. It's probably not as in play today. There are some very strong verses in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 that says if a prophet claims to be a prophet, speaking on behalf of the Lord, and what he says is going to happen doesn't happen, you throw rocks at his face till he's dead. And that one's never been rescinded, incidentally. So if you're going to say, I say in the name of the Lord, this is going to happen, you better be right. The other kind of prophecy is forth-telling. Simply saying, thus says the Lord. This is what God's word says. This is what God's word means. This is what we are to do with God's word. In a sense, those of us who teach and preach God's word in any capacity, from a platform, in a small group, in a Sunday school class with children, have the gift of prophecy that God takes out of it more than I put into it. And so you'll often hear me say, Lord God, would you please enable them to hear a better sermon than the one that was preached? It's not a hard job for him. But that's the gift of prophecy to proclaim the excellencies of God as revealed in Holy Scripture. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. (laughs) Probably this is understanding and discernment. I know some of you. Your Geiger counter just begins to wiggle when you hear some error, when you hear something that just doesn't quite smell right, doesn't jive. There's a check in your spirit sometimes, you'll say. This does not seem like it's coming from the spirit of truth. This seems like it's the spirit of error. That's the gift of discernment, and it's vital in the church. Many of our elders are armed and equipped with the gift of discerning the spirits. Is this from the Lord, or is this from somebody else's arrogance or hubris or flesh? We need to be able to discern that. Still here in verse 10, to another various kinds of tongues, <laughs> to another the interpretation of tongues. All right, so let's get to this. Let's talk about tongues. Tongues is the word glossa. It'll almost, almost always be referred to in the plural, tongues. And almost always it has the idea of previously existing, codified, known languages. At Pentecost, they're gathered the spirit of the Lord falls and they are all speaking in languages and being heard by foreign nationals who understand you're speaking Greek, you're speaking Latin, you're speaking Maltese, you're speaking Cyprian, you're speaking all these different languages, a codified known language. So what is this? 13 times the word tongues is used. It means a codified known foreign language. 21 times it's used to mean, yeah, we don't, we don't know maybe the actual organ in your mouth, maybe a codified language, maybe an angelic prayer tongue. 21 times, we just don't know. So that's not determinative. Now, I told you that we would cheat about this and look in chapter 14. So just very quickly, I will tell you, the entire 40 verses of chapter 14 are addressing the issue of tongues. It was a big deal then. It is potentially a big deal now. But there is, for me, 
an interpretive key. And if you disagree, that's okay. You can disagree with me on this. We can still have welches and wafers and be in fellowship. And then one day you'll die and you'll know better. It's fine. There is an interpretive key for me in 1 Corinthians 14. The Apostle Paul references Isaiah 28, and he also references Deuteronomy 28, in which God says to his son Israel, if and when you fail in my covenant, then the Gentiles will come and praise me in their own tongue. And Paul quotes that in chapter 14. We'll get there in two or three weeks. That for me is the interpretive key to say that normatively, this is the spread of languages that are codified across all the world as opposed to what happens in Genesis 11 when they decide to come together and build a Tower of Babel saying, we have no need of God, we will have one language, we have the technology, yes we can. God said, uh-uh, and now we have multiple languages. There is a redemptive recreation at Pentecost where all of these languages come together and people who previously could not understand Greek or Latin or Cyprian or Cushite, whatever it might have been, can suddenly understand that the Gentiles are praising Yahweh, the God of Israel. I want to be very quick to point out that does not mean that an angelic prayer language cannot or does not exist. It might. I call that Spanish I'm mostly kidding. I, it certainly could. I am not dogmatically saying that that cannot occur. My point is that it is not normative. And then here's the big one. It is not authoritative. And if those things begin to be trotted out as though they are authority, it creates chaos in the order of worship, not cosmos. So I'm not throwing out all of the babies with all of the bathwater. I'm saying God is interested in unity, through diversity unto maturity, not elevating one particular person over another. So it's a really big deal. Finally, verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So he ties this off so perfectly and precisely. This is the movement of the Spirit as the Spirit of God is in the business of redemptive recreation, he does so by manifesting himself in different believers. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know why you are, where, and when you are? The Spirit of God is doing a thing to redemptively recreate the world, which is why we say, and I've had so much fun this last week getting to teach this, even in our womenary classroom on the second floor on Wednesdays, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, is essentially synonymous with ecclesiology, the study of the church. And when you study the Holy Spirit, what you're really doing is you're studying the church because that's how God gets it done in this age with the Spirit through the church. The church is a redemptive recreation. Let me give just three very quick implication principles, application points here. Number one goes like this. Spiritual gifts come with a warning label. <laughs> in other words, there are some potential dangers of spiritual gifts in church, such as, refusing to involve yourself in other ministries because those ministries don't obviously or apparently involve your gifts. We like to say, oh, uh, I'm not gifted in that way. Sorry, nope, even rocket surgeons have to take out the trash and clean the crushed goldfish crackers out of our carpet. We all get to do that, okay? Another danger, thinking that certain gifts are more necessary than others. 
We'll talk about that in next week's passage, the rest of chapter 12. Another danger, having arrogance about your gifts. That never builds the body. It's like lactic acid. It just creates aches and pains and all sorts of dissonance. There's also a danger of the gifts Christians have been being, um, have being used to draw attention to themselves and how valuable they perceive themselves to be to the church. And when the church doesn't seem to notice adequately, all sorts of resentment and heartburn occur. In our culture, in our context, most people confess that they want to be spiritual, but being spiritual is not the same thing as being Christian. Pursuing gifts that are experiential or ecstatic just so you can be perceived as more spiritual person is in direct opposition of the Spirit's intent of the gifts. The spiritual gifts are never to take you out of the management of, or self-control of your own faculties or reason. I ask you people, ah, you know you're practicing the spiritual gifts when you're just doing the holy centipede on the floor. I, I, that's, no, no, no. See, Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So whatever that is, I hope it burns calories. It's, it's not of the Spirit. Secondly, spiritual gifts are for us, not you. Your gift is not for yourself. The theme and the thrust of this entire chapter is unity and diversity for maturity. There are some very practical thoughts and practices that we can each maintain. Number one, recognize that everyone has a gift. Like the, like the instruments of an orchestra playing a symphony. All of them matter and comprise a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. Secondly, recognize that people may have more than one gift. Our lives ebb and flow through seasons and skills, interests and investigations. We may be operating in multiple gifts or God may be moving us into a new season. The Spirit decides that based on whatever He needs. Three, realize that the gifts are mutually dependent and sometimes overlap. Again, with the illustration of an orchestra playing a symphony, the strings need the cooperation of the woodwinds, and they sometimes even play the same notes, but with variety. Number four, leaders are not to hoard ministry. The church is never to simply be that place where the pastor talks and does everything so that the people can come and watch and then leave. It is the responsibility of church leadership, in this case, very specifically, very seriously, Mike Hall, to recognize and provide ministry avenues for the exercising of people's gifts. That's why he's our equipping pastor, to unleash people to build, bolster, and bless the body. Take into account people's passions. What are they always talking about? What are they wondering and worrying about? Perhaps God is giving them a burden to build and bolster and bless the church. Consider the natural abilities and passions, but don't limit God to those. As in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses has a speech impediment, but was equipped and an educated leader that God was going to use to lead his children. When the church is full of people operating in their gifts for the church, there is unity and diversity for maturity. And then the veil between heaven and here grows strangely thin. And that's what the Spirit is all about. Third, you are God's gift to the church. You've always thought so. I'm just going to say it out loud. You really are. You're God's gift to the church. But more specifically, let me nuance that. God's gift to the church is spiritually gifted people. When the symphony is played by a spirit-fed and spirit-led orchestra, that is the church. Each instrument amplified and energized by God for his glory and for our good. It's a wondrous, beautiful occasion that blesses those present and draws those that aren't yet. And so in closing, I just want to give a silly, quick little acrostic, which you don't need to try to remember. Maybe we'll put it on screen. 
that will maybe be helpful as you think and pray and talk through your spiritual gifts and in the church in which you use them. So gifts, G, give yourself to God. Hold nothing back. Here I am. I love all through the Old Testament. God calls Abram. Here I am. He calls Moses. Here I am. He calls David. Here I am. He calls Eric. Busy. (laughs) No, no, no. Give yourself to God. I involve yourself in various ministries. Where might you, where might the church use you to reach them? The ministries are simply how we execute the vision of our church. F. Focus on a specific gift. What makes you come alive? Where do you have extra energy? Where do you do things that more comes out than what you put in? Focus on that. T, talk to others about your gift. Somebody close to you already has an idea how you're gifted. Ask them. S, seek God's guidance. God certainly sees you. He loves you and he is for you. He knows that your best is seeking his glory and the good of his people. He will begin to lead you. The church is a redemptive recreation. The New Testament details the movement, the growth, the expansion exponentially of the church from the book of Acts all the way through the book of Jude until we get into the book of Revelation. And the first three chapters are all about how the churches are doing. And finally in chapter four, we're transported to heaven. The veil is so thin between heaven and here that John's actually there and he sees what it's like and the order, the splendor, the wonder, the grandeur and the glory And the people who populate heaven and the presence of God are singing a hymn of creation. God, your glory, your power, your might, your splendor, your awesomeness are demonstrated and on display in creation. But chapter five, the page turns. And they begin to sing a song about the church and God's power and his might and his glory and his mercy and his grace in sending the son to redeem. The two great hymns of heaven, creation, redemption. And until such time as the veil is completely removed, the church gets to be a part of this redemptive recreation. And we are all gifted for such a time as this. Jesus taught us to pray. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven until the veil is gone. pray. Father, thanks for the morning. Thanks for the opportunity to dive into a difficult text. I've said it. I'll say it again. May all gathered here a better sermon than what was preached, and may you accomplish your perfect purpose precisely on time through all of these gathered here and called according to your purpose. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, would you move irresistibly by your spirit and summons them into a lasting living relationship with you because of the finished work of your son, Jesus. Encourage you, if that's you this morning, to speak with me or one of our other pastors or leaders, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, somebody that you know and love and trust about beginning this journey of faith, of thinning the veil between heaven and here. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us who we are because of whose we are and what we are to be about. Would you energize us, amplify us? Would you remind us that we have a manifestation of your spirit moving, thinking, feeling, talking, relating in every aspect of our lives? And may we find joy. 
We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.